You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm back to the show's usual coverage by taking a look at The Nom number 59, and this episode actually marks a milestone in the podcast itself because it means that I am two-thirds of the way through my 100-episode run, and 70% complete with the 84 issues of the comic and i actually did the math thank you calculator app the issue takes place during may of 1972 so our song this time around is the first time ever i saw your face by roberta flack which was number one on the billboard hot 100 from april 15th to may 20th of 72 the song was not originally written for Roberta Flack, however. It was written in 1957 by english political songwriter ewan mccall to be sung by folk singer Peggy Seeger, and it would be Flack's version that made the song famous. According to Wikipedia, the song was popularized by Roberta Flack in 1972 in a version that became a breakout hit for the singer. The first, the song first appeared on Flack's 1969 album First Take. Her rendition was much slower than the original, as an early solo recording by Seeger ran two and a half minutes long, whereas Flack's is more than twice that length. Flack's slower and more sensual version was used by Clint Eastwood in his 1971 directorial film debut, Play Misty for Me, during a lovemaking scene. With the new exposure, Atlantic Record cut the song down to four minutes and released it to radio. It became a very successful single in the United States, where it reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and the Easy Listening Charts in April 1972 for six weeks' runs on each list. It reached number 14 on the UK Singles Chart. In Canada, it was number one for three weeks in the RPM magazine charts. Our story is called Buff Strike, and the creative team is as follows. Chuck Dixon, writer, Wayne Van Zant breakdowns, Kim DeMolder finishes, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The book was published on June 25, 1991, with an August 1991 cover date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. And there is no formal credit as far as the cover art is concerned. It has a completely gray background with an explosion behind the book's title, and in the bottom right-hand corner of the cover is an airman deploying his parachute after ejecting. A caption says, You are now entering North Vietnam. Oh, 
And one other thing of note, which I have neglected to mention over the last few episodes, is that on the direct sales edition, the UPC code box now has a PW MIA logo. I wish I could figure out who did that cover, but my quick Googling has come up short, and it's a shame because it's actually a really good cover, which I have to say is a bit of a challenge after five straight very striking Andy Kubrick covers for the Death of Joe Hallen storyline. Remember, Drew uses the negative space incredibly well, having the airman be proportional to the explosion and having our eye follow him down toward the bottom of the cover. Plus, the very simple phrase, you are now entering North Vietnam, gives us enough suspense as to what happens inside the book without trying to oversell or promise something that isn't going to happen. It's an understated comic for a book published in the early 1990s, and that's saying something. Just like the Howland covers, this was one I stopped at while flipping through my run of the series on the way to rereading and and writing these recaps. We open in Anderson Air Force Base in Guam in May of 1972. Two airmen talk about how there are some rumors going around that they're going to start bombing North Vietnam again. Of course, it's a rumor because the higher-ups never tell them anything, and if it was up to one of them, they'd use the bombers that they were walking to, quote, turn Hanoi into a brickyard. In Hanoi, we see Hon Tran, Hon Tan, a former soldier who has lost a leg in the war and now contributes by, by working alongside women to make NVA uniforms. We then cut to Millinocket, Maine, where a woman does the dishes while her young son sits in his high chair and she watches the news and looks concerned when Walter Cronkite says there are indications that the bombing of North Vietnam will resume in the coming weeks and that Congress and even Nixon's staff are conflicted. She looks over at the portrait of her, hus- of her when she was pregnant and her husband in his Air Force uniform. Back in Guam, the bomber squadron gets their orders to begin what will be called Operation Linebacker, a bombing campaign that directly targets Hanoi. Four three-plane cells will leave Guam at 0300 on Wednesday and hit strategic targets in and around Hanoi. This happens to be the same area where we saw Hon Tan a few pages ago. The bombing raid begins, and two of the guys talk about how far everything seems when you're bombing the enemy at 30,000 feet. 30,000 feet below, Hon wakes up and gets ready for work, hoping that the war won't come to him again and will stay in the south. Meanwhile, a squad of wild weasel fighter bombers approach with the task of taking out the surface-to-air missiles that the NVA have set up along the riverbank. They are apparently successful, and the crew of the B-52 that we saw earlier seems to be hitting no resistance until an SAM is launched right at them. Our pilot, whose name is Hollander, tells the guy, other guy, Alvin Ritchie, we close enough to the war for you now, Alvin, while they take evasive action and try to stay in the air. On the ground, Hon is at the factory and hears the air raid siren. He thinks it's a drill but and doesn't hurry to the shelters and doesn't make it in time as the B-52s begin their carpet bombing of the adjacent rail yard. Up in the air, Hollander and Ritchie have righted the ships and are ready to head home when they spot Sam's coming right for them and are hit badly. Hollander orders Ritchie to eject, and he does, hoping that his superior officer got out as well as his chute deploys and he heads for Hanoi. Back in Maine, the woman we saw earlier, whom we discover is Richie's wife, is out shopping with her son, and she runs into a family friend, Mrs. Maley. They chit-chat, and Mrs. Maley mentions that Vietnam sounds terrible. She must be worried. But Mrs. Richie says Alvin isn't stationed in Vietnam, he's in Guam, and it seems like it's not even a war, but more like a job. And in fact, he's never set foot in Vietnam. On the ground in Hanoi, Juan's co-workers emerge from the bond shelters, and we see him on his side, presumably dead. And somewhere downriver, Alvin Ritchie is captured by an NVA patrol. 
This issue begins a brand new multi-part storyline for the title, but it does not have a specific name. We'll be seeing Richie throughout the next few issues, and the exception of a glimpse or two of a PW camp when Ramnorain was captured quite a while back and whom we haven't seen since issue 16 or so, there really hasn't been a story about a POW or an MIA soldier. I will say that this is a great start to such a storyline. Chuck Dixon is one of the best writers of action out there, and one of the things he does well is he knows how to pace things. Dixon has done a number, had done a number of Punisher stories around this time, and while those had their fair share of quiet moments, the Punisher, at least to me, always played more like your typical action flick, and that's not what you want out of a comic like The Nom, which is still trying to keep a sense of realism in its storytelling. I mean, based on the cover, we're pretty sure that one of these bombers that we see on page one is going to get shot down at some point during the comic, but those are part of the hook and give us an immediate sense of suspense. Not only that, but Dixon provides a very solid amount of setup for the circumstances and character of Alvin Ritchie. Of course, we get him and Hollander, whom I think I forgot to point out as a major, giving their, well, literal 30,000-foot view of the war. And then we have this NVA vet who has been able to find good work in a textile factory. It's a reminder of the human cost of the war, in the case that this man was injured and disabled as a result of the war, and that he lives where he lives on purpose because he doesn't want the war to come to him. And speaking of which, we have Alvin's wife, another reminder of the humanity behind the war, and something we haven't really gotten much of either. We've seen Ed Marks at home with his parents and his friends. We've seen the situation Joe Hallen came home to. And we've seen the storyline of how love gets messed up and even destroyed by the war with our helicopter pilot and our donut dolly. We really haven't seen anybody's wife back at home at this point. Then again, most of the men we've seen in this comic are very young and very single. There's not much to say about how the bombing raid gone wrong is written because it's done in a very textbook way. It's not a criticism. Dixon's obviously setting up Richie to be the focus of a POW storyline, so he needs a seemingly routine bombing raid to go completely wrong at some point, and he can do that without it being anything out of the ordinary. The idea that there would be some anti-aircraft missiles that the initial raid didn't get and they would be launched at the bombers makes complete sense, and Richie's ejecting to safety and then getting captured also makes complete sense and is contrasted nightly nicely with his wife in the grocery store, as well as the discovery of Juan's body, which is something I'm sure will provide some sort of general motivation for the enemy in future issues. The grocery store followed by the body followed by Richie's capture are the last three pages of the story, which make for a very good cliffhanger ending to part one. Wayne Van Zant only does breakdowns of this issue, and Kim DeMolder is a new anchor for the book, but not new to comics at this point because he had been working steadily for both Marvel and DC, since 1980 with work on Daredevil, The Defenders, Sergeant Rock. Fans of G.I. Joe will recognize his name as the artist on Hush Job, the silent story in G.I. Joe yearbook number three, which was the sequel, in a sense, to the very famous Larry Hama silent story, Silent Interlude, from G.I. Joe number 21. DeMolder is quite good and keeps the same amount of detail that Van Zant and Dizaniga have been giving us. And will he and Van Zandt work well with the solid pacing that Dixon had given the story? I'd like to say that they're drawing things fairly accurate, too. Again, the Vietnamese are not portrayed using stereotype or caricature. And the Americans are not overly, hero- overly heroic or larger than life. Plus, they draw Richie's wife to look like an average housewife of the era. DeMolder actually gives Van Zandt's artwork a little more fluidity than it didn't have at times, especially with the women characters. It's not meant as a harsh criticism or anything, but up until this point, Van Zandt's women could seem a little stiff. 
But on page 24, where she has the conversation with Mrs. Mallory at the grocery store, the facial ex expressions are natural. The only downside to the artwork is the fact that the baby, who's supposed to be 18 months old, is drawn to look quite a bit older. It's a nitpick of one panel in what's an incredibly strong issue. Oh, and a quick bit of trivia. On page 11, we see one of the wild weasels piloted by Major Kevin Kobasik and Captain Ro Robert Tokar, whom both worked for Marvel at the time when and whom Jimmy Palmiotti mentioned during my brief chat with him a few episodes ago. So that's it for the issue. I'm going to be back in a bit taking a look at May 1972, as well as letters and ads. <laughs> Movies, TV, comics, music, pop culture affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com, and be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. Now, if you're following along with the historical context section, you know that I'm at January of 1970 or so, but this issue has a specific date attached to it, so I'm going to be breaking to look at May of 72. And next episode, I'll be back to the events of early 1970. I'd like to start with Anderson Air Force Base, which is located in Guam and still has a, is, a, is in use as a major base of operations in the South Pacific. Its role in the Vietnam War was as a base for long-range bombers such as the B-52s. I'll get to Operation Linebacker in a moment. But what I do want to mention is that Anderson is the base seen in the 21 Jump Street episode Christmas in Saigon, which I reviewed a few episodes back, as it received nearly 40,000 refugees and processed another 109,000 on their way to the United States after the fall of Saigon in 1975. And that information comes from Wikipedia. Operation Linebacker was just as depicted as the comic, a large bombing campaign of North Vietnam in the spring and summer of 1972. The object was to disrupt supply lines and hit other strategic targets as, so as to slow offenses that the NVA had been undertaking in the South. According to the History Place, in response to the ongoing NVA Eastertide Offensive, President Nixon announced Operation Linebacker 1, the mining of North Vietnam's harbors along with intensified bombings of roads, bridges, and oil facilities on May 8th. The announcement brings international condemnation of the United States and ignites more anti-war protests in America. The operation would begin in earnest on May 9th, with the dropping of mines into Haiphong Harbor, with successes being touted almost immediately, as May 17th has the U.S. reporting that Operation Linebacker has been effective at slowing NVA supply lines. The campaign would go on through August, ending with the return of North Vietnam to the table of the Paris peace talks. This would be one of the last major bombing offenses of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War. May 1st sees the South Vietnamese surrender Quang Tri City to the NVA, and the Paris peace talks break up on May 4th. According to Wikipedia, the Paris peace talks were suspended indefinitely after the United States and South Vietnam pulled out because, quote, of a lack of progress. This, when North Vietnam's negotiator, Lee Duc Tho, refused to budge on negotiations, even after Henry Kissinger had suggested that the American president was a madman, President Nixon told Kissinger, 
The bastards have never been bombed like they're going to be bombed this time. May 13th marks a technological breakthrough in the war, as the first successful use of the laser-guided bomb was accomplished when the Tanhua Bridge was destroyed in North Vietnam, quote, accomplishing in a single mission what seven years of non-precision bombing had failed to do. The United States had first bombed the 500-foot-long, 160-meter concrete and steel structure in 1965. Twelve F-4 fighters made runs with 15 Mark 84 and 9 Mark 118 bombs to render the structure useless. On May 15th, the United States headquarters in Vietnam is decommissioned, and on May 22nd, President Nixon visits the Soviet Union and meets with Leonid Brezhnev to forge new dis- diplomatic relations with communist nation. Nixon's visits caused great concern in Hanoi that their Soviet ally might be inclined to agree on an unfavorable settlement to the war to improve Soviet relations with the United States. On May 30, 1972, the NVA attack on Kantum is thwarted by South Vietnamese troops aided by massive United States airstrikes. And finally, two events that are important not to Vietnam, but to United States history, especially the Nixon presidency. First, on May 2, 1972, J. Edgar Hoover, the longtime director of the FBI, died in his sleep. As a result, L. Patrick Gray was appointed temporary director of the Bureau, where Mark Felt was moved up to the number two position or associate director. Felt would and eventually wind up being the FBI's point man in the Watergate investigation, knowing all of the information the Bureau had about the case starting almost immediately after the botched June 17th break-in at the DNC offices in the Watergate Hotel. Felt's involvement here would prove to be as one of the most important figures in Watergate, as he supplied information to Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward, taking the nickname Deep Throat, and his identity would remain a mystery until May 31, 2005, when Vanity Fair ran a story wherein Felt revealed his identity. Uh, Felt has since passed away. The other event is actually a break-in at the Watergate, but not the one that's the most famous. On May 26, there was an unsuccessful attempt to bug the DNC offices at the Watergate, and then another attempt on May 28 that was successful. A malfunction in one of the bugs would lead to a third break-in attempt on June 17. Now that's it for historical context. I'll pick up again with January 1970 next episode. In future episodes, I'll have occasional pop culture items as more, such as more book reviews or television episodes in addition to the historical context. But right now, let's take a look at the letters and ads. Incoming this month, Vince Iacuzzi from Boundbrook, New Jersey writes in. He, says he, he said, I read one of your non-comics yesterday. It wasn't bad, but it was written to somebody who wrote it really wasn't over there and just gave the story a glossing over, or glassing over, as he writes. It seems to me that also, also that you don't want to get into any controversial subjects like fragging. I know you already answered the letter, a letter on this in the nom number 11 saying that fragging was not an everyday occurrence. This is a cop-out if I ever heard one. If you only wrote about what was an everyday occurrence, your comic would be like this, like it is, all fluff. Whether or not it was an everyday occurrence, you shouldn't write about it because it did happen. Same with drugs, prostitution, and the black market. Being a Vietnam veteran myself, 1969, 101st Airborne, I personally know that these things really happened. 1969 was a turning point in the war, as far as I'm concerned. The United States government was really starting to lose control of the troops. All those guys demonstrating against the war stateside were being drafted, and they were mad as, and there's a bunch of uh, gobbledygook, but I think it's supposed to be hell. I could tell you true stories that would sound unbelievable to you, but... That, but that were not everyday occurrences. For example, some of my friends would go to town, a small village, get some of the local girls at gunpoint, pile them in a truck, bring them back 
to the base and rape them. When they were finished, they would drop them off outside the gate. Some of my friends used to keep getting picked off by snipers in the day. The snipers would escape to a nearby village. When we would look for them, nobody knew anything or where they were hiding. How many friends can you lose before you've had enough? We had to dust the whole village. Guess what? No more snipers. Do you know some of the reasons officers were fragged? I mean, besides the fact that they were... I think this is supposed to be um, a-holes. Some officers used to pull surprise inspections and confiscate any drugs you might have. Then they would sell the drugs to another enlisted man, and in turn, he would try to sell you back your own stash. I can remember an officer who did this so often that he had the guards at both entrances of his hooch and 55-gallon drums of sand surrounding it. But there was a gap of four feet between the barrels and the hooch. Somebody threw a grenade from 100 yards away, and it landed in that gap next to the officer's head, killing him instantly. Vince Iacuzzi, Bound Brook, New Jersey. You've brought up some very good points, Vince, is the editor, and we, we appreciate, obviously, heartfelt comments. The nom was pretty much meant to be an average grunt's eye view of the war with occasional examinations of special groups and events. So we try to tend to try to portray the more regular experiences and occurrences to the more accurately show what day-to-day life was like. Granted, we are forced to do so within the confines of the Comics Code Authority, which, when portraying something as controversial and tumultuous as the nom, can be somewhat limiting to say the least. We did once portray a fragging issue number six. We tried to get a later issue, but it was decided at the last minute it wasn't appropriate at the time to the story, and the scene was scrapped. Um, personally, uh, this is this is me again. I would have loved to see what Doug Murray would have done when he was if he was still ans- writing this and answering the uh, letter column at this time. It was probably Kevin Kabasik who's answering uh, answering these letters, but um, Doug Doug would have been a little less. Um, balanced in his response the way and he would have been i think he would have answered a little more directly and even debated um this is this kind of one of the things i miss about the letter column but at the same time i do like seeing letters like this because they're not all praise and you see that there are still some people out there who are reading this book for you know to see what if it really is a piece of literature about the vietnam war and they're not afraid to voice their opinion thomas may has another has a letter and then Mario J. Taran has one. Thomas May says, Woo, you breathe life back into, the, into a tired old dog. And he's talking about the d- death of Joe Hallen. Um, he says, the, the comic took a serious nosedive after a while uh, during the first 30 issues or so. Uh, the stories are stiff and bland. So it was the art. He said, I couldn't believe you could resort to using superheroes in issue 41. And then putting the Punisher in there, and he and he loved the uh, death of Joe Hallen. He would love to see more of Andy Kubert's work. And then Mario J. Taran from El Paso, Texas, writes in, and he says he just finished reading issue number 55. It's been an excellent story. Uh, he's been wanting to write you since he picked up issue number two and realized that it was about my old outfit. I went home and mailed in my subscription, but I'm missing issues number one and three. How can I get them? All right. I was with Flame Platoon HHC, 5th October 69 to 4th November 70, and with and with our mech flamethrowers, we constantly supported our line companies and went to Cambodia in June of 1970 with the rest of the 423rd. How come you haven't done a series about story about our Zippos mentioned or mentioned our fire support base Rawlings, which was our home prior to going to Cambodia? Be nice to see Nui Ba Den, Black Virgin Mountain, in the background. Also, the Tomahawks have a Congressional Medal of Honor winner in Specialist 4, I guess Specialist 4th class? 
Danny J. Peterson, who was awarded the medal posthumously in January 1970. He was a track commander in one of the line companies. That would make an excellent story for a future issue. I'll sign off now. Keep up the excellent work. Mario J. Karen. Uh, they respond, thanks, Mario. As for your questions, you can acquire back issues through comics, uh, mail order, theater, blah, blah, blah. Or you can purchase the Nom Trade paperback number one and collection of issues number one through four. Uh, next issue, Richie's psychological combat with an NVA interrogator, plus the return of Ramnarain, who was captured by the VC in issue sixteen. He has three years a prisoner of has three years of prisoner of war camp been kind to him. Yeah, right. Nam notes this month there's only three. There's DMZ, which is the demilitarized zone, Como, Communications, and Ville is Village. Ads this month. Uh, Marvel Series 2 trading cards. I had a ton of these. Uh, the ad is what looks like the hands of a kid, Doctor Doom, Sabretooth, I think that's the Lizard, and Spider-Man all holding cards. And it says swap cards with everyone in the human race and some who aren't. Um, and, uh, and there are bonus hologram cards. I had quite a few of these, and these were really, really great cards. I loved these cards. Uh, let's see. Battletoads are still around. Um, Dragonlance Fantasy Collector cards. Uh... There is an addition to um, Dragonlance and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons TSR uh, cards because it looks like there's for multiple multiple games. I guess they're an addition to your games. There is a Marvel T-shirt, uh, Marvel T-shirt uh, order thing. Uh, there's a really cool Infinity Gauntlet T-shirt with George Perez art. A McFarlane Spider-Man, a Silver Surfer one, and then a Captain America 50th Anniversary Commemorative T-shirt. The Rifts from Palladium Books game is still in there. Uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day movie cards. Introducing collector cards as powerful as the film that inspired them. And a special card in each pack offering T2 merchandise not available in retail. Entertainment this month. We have Cyclops shooting the X-Men. Order by June, July 15th. Get a free limited edition X-Men poster by Jim Lee. Let's see what we got. We've got Excalibur 42. Alan Davis. Spider-Man 15. X-Men parody. Uncanny X-Men 281. New team. Oh, yeah. Here we go. All the X-Men covers... X-Men number one set for $10, sale for $7.95, get all five editions, including the hot limited edition, buy as many sets as you need, probably because they printed a ton of them. Giant Size X-Men number one, a special collector's edition, 80 pages, I guess it's a reprint of Giant Size X-Men, a Jim Lee poster book, I think I had that actually, I did have that. Uh, original X-Men number one, yeah, so these are reprints. A box set of X-Men cards, uh, limited edition prints. Um, let's see what else we got. ETM Pick Hits, Adventures of Captain America number one and two. Batman Holy Terror, very controversial anti-religion story by Denny O'Neill. I thought Alan Brenner wrote that. I'll have to look that up. Best Marvel Stories Ever. Um, that's a trade, I believe. Marvel Cards 2, $36 for a box, regular 
sale of $24.95. I don't know why. Oh, I guess they're just showing you what you would save. Uh, the Marvel Swimsuit Special. Marvel's top female characters in skimpy swimwear. Thanos Quest uh, 1 and 2, which is the prelude to the Infinity Gauntlet by Jim Starlin and Ron Lim. And then they run down um, bestsellers, independents, uh, DC, and some of the other things that are coming out in August, uh, I believe August, September of 1991. Uh, let's see. Bullpen Bulletins is a cartoon. Uh, Stan Soapbox by Stan Lee and John Romita. So Spider-Man shows up to Stan and John and says, remember all the strips you guys did together? Yeah, but that was before we became dignified and mature. And now Stan and I have serious stuff on our minds. Right, Johnny, we got to act our age. Enough said. And it shows them walking off with go- wearing Ghost Rider. And Ramita- Stan's got a Ghost Rider Wolverine t-shirt. And Ramita's got a Thing Holding Balloons t-shirt. And Spidey's got his hand in his just at a facepalm. Then we have One Day at Marvel. Mark, you got to come up with some topics for the next bullpen bulletin page. Okay, Tom, I'll do it right away, as long as I have no interruptions. Suddenly, assistant editor Dan Cuddy enters. Hi, Mark. I have to show you my new video for my band, Hypno Love Wheel. I'll just pop into your VCR. But, but, oh yeah, we also have a new CD out. It's called Space Mountain. It's available from Alias Records. Hi, guys. What's, like, what's that groovy music? Why, it's semi-conscious Michael Higgins. Aren't you working on two more Excalibur graphic novels? Yeah, but first I have to do something really important. I have to follow the Grateful Dead around on tour. Just then, X-Men assistant editor Suzanne Gaffney enters. Hi, Mark. I just finished redecorating Danny Fingeroth's apartment, and I thought I'd do your office next. It'll only take a couple of days. Enter neo-editor Nell Yamtov. Yamtoy? Yamtov. Mark, I quit my jazz group, the Bluesicians, a few months back, but I'm still the best jazz harmonica player in New York. Listen. Suddenly, Arachno editor Danny Fingeroth enters. Mark, I'm really excited about J.M.D. J. Mateus' work on Moon Knight and Spectacular Spider-Man. Wait till you see what Howard Mackey is doing in Web of Spider-Man. Let me tell you about it. Enter Mike Rockowitz and Bob Harris. What's going on here? Is this a party? Hey, everyone. Mark's having a party in his office. Just then, Tom DeFalco returns. Mark, what's going on in here? And where's that bullpen page? Groan. And the script was Barry Dutter and the arc was Rick Parker. One of the slightly more entertaining bullpen bulletins we've had in recent months. Our, we got a Mile High Comics ad, uh, which I always love these. I used to flip through these like crazy. Although this one, the print is so small, it is hard to read it. Um... Uh, next ad is a house ad for the 1991 annuals. There's the Korvac Quest, which takes place in Fantastic Four Annual number 24, the Mighty Thor Annual number 16, Silver Surfer Annual number 4, and Guardians of the Galaxy Annual number 1. We have an ad for Sleepwalker, where dreams become when dreams become nightmares and nightmares become reality, recurring every 30 nights from Bob Bidiansky, Brett Blevins, and Marvel Comics. Uh, the subscription ad is Hulk looking at us from peering over some sunglasses, and it was get three titles for devices too. There is an acclaim ad for the Punisher, the Ultimate Payback Game Boy video game. Ready, aim, punish. Crime. The stench is everywhere, but now Big Jigsaw and his band of drug lords will be taught a lesson in justice. Punish. punish. 
there's nowhere for them to hide. Packing his M60 machine gun, nitro-charged grenades, and heat-seeking rockets, of course, the Punisher will hunt them down from the urban Newark jungle to the voodoo-infested wilds of South America. That's not racist. Destroying everything evil in his sights with Spider-Man at his side. As you do, hundreds of enemies will be given the ultimate Needless to say, I never played this game. Uh, the back page is an advanced D&D ad. Electrify your campaign with the Tome of Magic. And this is a uh, big thing of, for to help those who are magic users in advanced D&D. And that is it. Next we, uh, next episode, I will be back with the NOM number 60, which continues our story. I'll be taking uh, a look at uh, January 1970. And until then, take care. Thanks for listening. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. And last... Till the end of time, my love, and it would last till the end of time, my love. The first time. Your face.